0: Barack Obama was technically the first occupant of the Oval Office to have a smartphone. He finally upgraded from a BlackBerry in his last year in office. But there's no doubt Donald Trump has led the way in turning his phone into a tool of presidential power. The busiest single day for the first thumbs came in January during the impeachment hearings in Congress, when he tweeted 142 times. But the output from iPhone 1 can easily distract from what's going on inside it the 5 nanometer chips that power the latest smartphones are at the center of the struggle for dominance between the world's two biggest economies with 164 days to go this is checks and balance there are a million nanometers in a millimeter by the way I'm John Perdeaux, The Economist's US Editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do microchips tell us about what's happening to globalization? The Trump administration has been celebrating an announcement from the Taiwanese firm TSMC that it will build a semiconductor factory in Arizona. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said it was a boost for the country's economic independence amid China's creeping dominance in tech. California's Apple and China's Huawei both rely on TSMC to make phones. A geopolitical tug-of-war is being fought over nanoscopic wafers of silicon. In this episode, we'll look back at the moment economic nationalists blame for America's industrial decline, and as the coronavirus stokes anti-China sentiment, we'll ask whether so-called deglobalization will continue no matter who wins November's election. With me as ever to talk about all of this are John Fazman, the Economist's Washington correspondent, and Charlotte Howard, the economist's New York bureau chief. So, lockdown in America is lifting. Has anything changed your end? Connecticut, where I'm locked down, just began reopening yesterday.
1: It was super cautious. The governor is very cautious. But he is already talking about phase two of reopening, which will include uh, gyms and bowling alleys and movie theaters and seems to me insane. So the state is open where we are. But, uh, you know, we are still out in the countryside, pretty well isolated.
0: How about where you are, Charlotte.
2: New York is still in lockdown, but even if it wasn't, I would have still been in lockdown. I was part of a team working on this week's cover story, which looks at whether the historic drop in emissions we've seen because of COVID might be the beginning of the end for fossil fuels, whether that peak for fossil fuels might have come earlier.
0: Yeah, you seem to have written a large chunk of the paper this week, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Okay, let's get into this. When I read about this Taiwanese chipmaker, TSMC, promising to build a new plant in Arizona, I immediately thought of Hal Hodson. He's the Economist's Asia technology correspondent. He's based in Hong Kong. He's written about this company a lot. I ended up asking him to explain what a fab is.
3: A fab is Semiconductor industry lingo for a factory that makes computer chips. And uh, it's these days a monstrous hangar type building, completely huge. It would take an hour to walk around it. And it's filled with giant industrial machine tools and robots, all of which are focused on etching tiny, tiny, tiny. Electrical circuits into wafers of silicon. And once they've done that, those wafers get packaged up into bits of plastic and threaded with wires, and they get assembled into the phones that you carry around
0: in your pocket. And Hal, you have a bit of a thing about TSMC, this company whose products we all use hundreds of times every day, but perhaps some of our listeners won't have heard of. Tell us a little bit about TSMC. You went to one of their factories in Taiwan and wrote about it in a brilliant Christmas piece for The Economist.
3: Yes, I I went to one of their factories. I could not get in. Almost nobody gets to go in. Often even the bosses of the companies that are TSMC's customers are not allowed in. So secretive is the process. I'm told that the most powerful customers like Huawei and Apple are allowed to have a digital connection to what's going on inside so they can monitor the progress of the chips that are being made for them. There's this huge factory company making chips that power the whole world, and very few people know what it is or have ever heard of it.
0: And it's in a difficult position in terms of geopolitics at the moment, isn't it? Because it's two biggest customers are Huawei, um, the Chinese tech giant, and Apple. And given that the American government is currently bent on trying to prevent American firms doing, or even suppliers to American firms doing business with Huawei, that puts TSMC in a very difficult position, doesn't it?
3: It is in a very difficult position. You might describe it as a position of unstable equilibrium, which means it's currently standing up and stable and not falling over. But it's very, very delicate, uh, like a pyramid on its tip instead of on its base. Um, and, and what the Trump administration's doing is definitely destabilizing it to some extent. China's chip aspirations kind of can't proceed without access to TSMC. And the same goes for Apple's aspirations as a business. Apple can't really survive without access to TSMC. And TSMC just so happens to be on this island of Taiwan, which is a disputed territory. So it's an extremely messy geopolitical slash technological situation.
0: And TSMC is now going to build a plant in Arizona, something that's been announced with a certain amount of fanfare by the Trump administration. On the face of it, this looks like a win for for deglobalizers, right? This is manufacturing coming home. Is that an accurate reading of what's, what's going on? Or is that just a spin?
3: Absolutely. The TSMC Arizona announcement is an example of Trumpian mercantile trade views coming home to roost. The funny thing is that as one strand of US government policy pulls this very advanced manufacturer onto US soil, The other strand of U.S. policy, which is the the actions on Huawei, are actually having the effect of driving advanced manufacturing off U.S. soil. Because if you think about it, the only way that the U.S. has any jurisdiction to say what any of these companies can and cannot do is because the manufacturing happens on its soil. So if you're dealing with this sort of slightly capricious uh, government that's afraid of China and wants to hold it back, and you're a company that just wants to sell stuff. You're going to think that maybe I'm going to put my next investment in Europe or Japan or even China itself.
0: So Hal, on the face of it, this might look like a story of deglobalization, but it sounds like it's really not. It's about how global supply chains kind of adapt around the regulations that the federal government is bringing in. It doesn't sound like the administration has found an off button for globalization, at least as far as chip making goes. No, it hasn't found an off button for globalisation. And I mean, if
3: you think about the forces that are uh, arrayed against it in that, you're talking about tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of investment that wants to find a home where it's at as little risk as possible. And against that, you've got the Trump administration forcing through rules that even the bureaucrats in the departments that govern the rules don't really think are a good idea. So it's hard to see how that works. Perhaps if you had the full machinery of American regulatory and bureaucracy on your side and you didn't have this Trumpian deep state versus the administration divide It might work, but in the current situation, it's very hard to see how they can do this.
0: I found that really helpful because discussions of globalisation can get so abstract that I think it's helpful to ground it in something specific like um, semiconductors. Charlotte, what did you make of what Hal had to say?
2: I think it's a really interesting window into what has already become a central fight in the 21st century. In the 20th century, you think about how much effort was spent uh, by governments trying to secure fossil fuel resources and think about energy security, because, of course, fossil fuels powered the growth of the 20th century. In the 21st century, you think about how technology increasingly is so central to countries' economic futures. Who controls chip making, intellectual property. This is very much at the top of the mind, not only of people who want to promote economic growth, but the top of people who are thinking about national security. Compared with oil, technology and the control of technology is more diffuse. It doesn't depend on where natural resources are based. But you can have real centers of power, as Hal explained. And dealing with it is in some ways more complicated than dealing with, for example, oil. You have supply chains that are more complex intellectual property and control of it is more complex. And you see the Trump administration muddling through this in a way that is not entirely coherent.
0: As you say, Charlotte, in practice, this is fiendishly complex. But John, politically, there's a real appealing simplicity to it, isn't there? I mean, TSMC building this plant in Arizona. Arizona, as we know, is going to be a key state in 2020. Talking to Elliot Morris, who's building our election forecasting model, there's a lot of evidence so far that suggests Arizona might be even more important than Wisconsin in 2020, which is a state we've talked about a lot. And... The president will be able to say, you know, look what I did. I put pressure on China and Huawei. I've turned back the tide of globalization. And now this big chip maker is making a factory in Arizona. MAGA economics works. It's a very good sell politically, even if it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of what's going on, right?
1: It is, although the president probably has to hope that Arizonans don't look too closely at what has happened in Wisconsin, where Foxconn built a factory to great fanfare, and it has so far done very little. TSMC has agreed to build a factory in Arizona, but it's not supposed to come online until I think 2023 or 2024. So whether it actually gets built or makes anything is an open question. But he will get to say on the campaign trail that there's something coming.
0: One of the things that I was struck by when talking to Hal, which goes to the politics of this, is that in response to the Trump administration's rules, trying to make it harder for Huawei to get hold of the chips that it needs, you've seen a big uptick in the amount of chips being shipped, not from US factories, but from factories of American companies outside the US. So in particular, from Intel's factories in Ireland, and Israel. So companies, including American companies, will try and find ways to get around the Trump administration's rules on this. It's really hard. as Charlotte was saying the supply chains are so complex, it's really hard to find a kind of fail safe way to do what the Trump administration wants to do here. Okay, thanks, guys. In a moment, we will look back at China's entry into the WTO, the moment that often gets the blame for America's subsequent industrial decline in many people's telling. But first, a reminder to people listening, if you're not an Economist subscriber already, you really ought to be. This week's issue has plenty more on the chip wars and how to come out of lockdown safely. It's also packed with stories written by Charlotte. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, head to economist.com slash pod2020. The link is in the show notes for this episode. A big part of Donald Trump's appeal in 2016 was that he ran against the Washington elite who couldn't see what common sense dictated was good for America. Exhibit A was the way they let China into the World Trade Organization. What followed According to Mr. Trump, was the economic equivalent of hauling a large wooden horse inside the gates of Troy, and then going for a nap.
3: Hi, I'm Peter Navarro, director of Death by China.
0: Trump I'm has picked advisors country who country share his views. Tiger.
3: What China's militarism
0: means. One to of the his world. ever is it's Peter wait. Navarro.
3: Help defend America and protect your family. Don't buy made in China.
0: Martin Sheen, an iconic TV president narrates the documentary film of Navarro's book.
4: The film you're about to see addresses one of the most urgent problems facing America. Its increasingly destructive trade relationship with a rapidly rising China.
0: But most economists politely ignored him. Now that view has gone from fringy to practically being the conventional wisdom, at least in Washington. The most authoritative study of the China shock from David Orter of MIT and his co-authors, suggests a million Americans lost their jobs in manufacturing after China joined the WTO. So why did America let China in? And was it as dumb a thing to do as Mr. Navarro says? The year is 2000. Bill is president, the dot-com boom is yet to burst, everyone has a Nokia. America having won two hot world wars and a cold one is in self-confident mood.
4: We know how much the internet has changed America and we are already an open society. Imagine how much it could change China.
0: China wants to join the WTO. Bill Clinton thinks it will cement his legacy.
4: Now there's no question China has been trying to crack down on the internet. <laughs> Good luck. But he needs a Republican-led Congress to vote for it. That's sort of like trying to nail gel over to the wall.
0: <laughs> Should America let China
4: in? Once in a generation, you get a chance to open a market with over a billion consumers. The biggest potential market in the world. In return, for China's entry as a full partner in the World Trade Organization, the United States would gain unprecedented access to China's markets.
0: Between 1977 and 2000, China's share of world trade increased sixfold while still outside the global trading system governed by the WTO. America's trade deficit with China, a number President Trump still obsesses about, was soaring. Getting China into the club would even out the trade balance by allowing all conquering American companies to crack open vast new markets.
4: So if you believe in a future of greater openness and freedom for the people of China, you ought to be for this agreement. If you believe in a future of greater prosperity for the American people, you certainly should be for this agreement. If you believe in a future of peace and security for Asia and the world, you should be for this agreement. This is the right thing to do. It's an historic opportunity and a profound American
0: responsibility. But there was an even bigger prize. Having arrived at the end of history, Americans were confident it was only a matter of time before China's autocracy gave way to a more pluralistic political system. More trade would speed that process along. Congress approved normalizing trade relations with China. Joe Biden voted yes, as did the Republican leadership at the time.
3: They gave me a large fortune cookie here today, and, Mr. Speaker, I'd like you to open it up and see what the fortune inside
4: says here today. It says, new American proverb, new prosperity awaits you because normal trade relations.
0: George Bush, Sr., giving a commencement speech at Yale, captured the spirit of the times. No nation on earth has discovered a way to import the world's goods and services while stopping foreign ideas at the border, he said. Of course, it didn't work out like that. America's trade deficit with China continued to grow, and China's government has become, if anything, more autocratic over the past 20 years. So was it all a big mistake? The answer depends on what you think would have happened if China had remained outside the WTO, and that's hard to figure out. China's share of world trade would probably have carried on growing. If you plot the US trade deficit with China on a chart, there's no discernible shift after 2001. But let's say WTO membership did make China richer, quicker, because that seems likely. Then, letting China join the club played a part in lifting hundreds of millions of Chinese people out of poverty. It's hard to argue that's a bad thing, even if saying so out loud in a presidential election won't win you any votes.
4: Where's that product made?
0: Probably in China. 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 This is made in China. Meanwhile, more trade with China meant lower prices in America.
4: For, you know, $200, you can't really, you know, beat that. So. Good
0: news for Black Friday bargain hunters in the Death hey, by China ready. film. You
4: know, if the American people can't provide me with what I need, I got to get it from China. Hey, it is what
0: but it also is. for American companies. Apple might not be what it is today without Foxconn's factories in China. Finally, was Bush Sr. naïve to think that Chinese consumers would fall in love with Oreos and then rise up and overthrow the communist regime? Certainly seems foolish now. But it's also possible that a poorer China would have been even more nationalistic, pricklier or more worryingly unstable than the China we know now.
1: I think that's a great question to end on, John, not just whether entry into the WTO was a good or bad thing, but what would a poorer China have looked like? It might have been much more nationalistic, as you point out, than the one we have now. Nonetheless, there are a lot of people who supported China's entry into the WTO in the early 90s, not just politicians, but China scholars who think that they got something wrong, who think that they may have sort of underestimated the resilience of the Chinese Communist Party underestimated their commitment to cementing their hold on power. And I think it's an appropriate time to look back and ask what China's entry meant for the rest of the world.
2: To build on that, as John Prito explained in the package, there has been an enormous benefit for the Chinese people. I mean, more than 400 million people since 1999 no longer live in extreme poverty. That's a huge achievement. And in terms of China's economic standing in the world, you saw this steady march through the 2000s with China's role becoming elevated. In 2006, it became America's second biggest trading partner, surpassing Mexico. 2009, China surpassed Germany to become the world's biggest exporter of goods. Uh, 2010, China surpasses Japan to have the world's second biggest economy. So it's been a pretty remarkable climb for China since the late 90s.
1: I will say one of the more regrettable aspects of the anti-China sentiment is that it sort of morphed into a broader anti-trade sentiment. Barack Obama spent a lot of his second term negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which was a trade agreement intended to sort of isolate China in Asia and boost American trade relationships with a lot of Southeast Asia, which is where I was based for a few years before coming to DC. And there's a tremendous amount of optimism there, I'm thinking particularly in Vietnam, That fell through because the anti China sentiment that had been percolating in America for a long time also became an anti free trade sentiment. And so America really lost a potent economic weapon to counter China. And I think that's regrettable.
2: Yeah. And even in 2016, I was struck that Hillary, who of course was part of Barack Obama's administration, found it politically untenable to continue supporting this central trade achievement of the Obama administration, the TPP, that neither Clinton nor Trump were able to see any political future for it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's a tendency to look at what's going on with US China and trade barriers going up all over the place and assume that this is something brand new or that it's entirely due to Donald Trump. But as you both point out, TPP, which was really designed as America's strategy to be the rulemaker in world trade and isolate China, President Obama couldn't get Republicans in Congress to sign on. For that. So while the intensity of the rhetoric with China, you know, on both sides, frankly, is new and feels different, it's not the case that we went overnight from a world in 2016 where Americans were excited about free trade to one where it was all about confronting China.
2: It's interesting looking back at Democrats' record on this. Pelosi was one of the Democrats who opposed the WTO agreement with China. Looking back, I was looking back at her statement and she cited. Many of the things that Democrats say now, she was citing those reasons 20 years ago. So she said, you know, China has a history of of not adhering with prior trade deals, not protecting intellectual property, not opening its market in addition to human rights abuses. So why should Congress permanently surrender its leverage at this time was the language she used. And you see Trump claiming that mantle from Democrats and then adding his own Trumpian spin on it in 2016. One of the things that Nancy Pelosi was concerned about at the time and 20 years ago was China's human rights record. Trump is less concerned about that. His approach is more purely mercantile. But you do see the roots of this debate going quite far back.
0: Yes, to your point, Charlotte, it's interesting talking to our colleagues in Beijing about how the Communist Party look at the two sides in American politics. On the one hand, they find Donald Trump very hard to deal with because he's erratic and they don't think that he will stick to any agreements that they think they've struck with him. On the other hand, the way that Democrats keep bringing up human rights is really, really uncomfortable for them. Because although they might be able to do a deal on you know, buying more American soybeans or some other deal that might kind of keep the American government happy on trade terms... It's very, very hard to see how they can comply with any of those demands from the Democratic Party on human rights without really giving up their system of um, authoritarian government entirely. Okay, thank you both. We'll look at what all of this means for 2020 in just a moment. Globalisation is, broadly speaking, the process whereby the world gets smaller and more interconnected, then it really feels like we've entered a period of deglobalisation. After weeks of lockdown across the US and Europe, nobody flying, the world seems bigger and more distant. But is that really the same as deglobalisation? It's something I've been talking about with Samaya Keynes. She's the trade and globalisation editor for The Economist.
5: Some of what we're seeing now is, is definitely legit deglobalization there are new barriers being put up everything is just a bit harder because of covid i think a lot of what is going on though is also just crashing demand people don't want to move stuff from a to b now, if they don't want to move stuff from a to b and and they they don't is that really deglobalization or is it is it just crashing demand which will hopefully reverse at some point if and when we say get a vaccine
0: So there's a COVID specific element to deglobalization, but is there deglobalization beyond what's currently being forced on the world by COVID-19?
5: Yeah, I mean, the obvious example would be the tariffs imposed by the Trump administration, skepticism towards foreign investment, but particularly Chinese investment. We've seen the Trump administration impose more controls on, on how much companies allowed to do business with Huawei. You've got these simmering tensions and a a questioning of countries' relationship with China around the world. And if you think that China is the world's largest exporter of intermediate goods, of components, it's a massive part of global supply chains, then those forces are pushing for a less kind of integrated world. And how
0: Trump-dependent is deglobalization? I mean, if you removed him from the equation, how much of this, in your judgement, would be happening anyway? And, and how much of it really is caused by him?
5: Ooh, I think President Trump has a special way of making the lives of trade correspondents particularly stressful. It's the erratic announcements, you don't really know what's coming next. Um, and I think all of that has the effect of adding huge uncertainty to America's economic relationship with the rest of the world. So I think some of that would go if we were under a different presidency. But lots of things would stay the same, I think. There's a bipartisan consensus in America that something needs to change with regards to the China relationship. There's a lot of hawkishness around. And so I don't see a grand reversal of every restrictive measure were, say, President Biden to to come in. I think the scepticism of Chinese investment, the concerns about Chinese companies' relationship with the state, that's, that's here to stay. Um, and you can see it elsewhere. You, you can see it in Europe. You can see governments worried that COVID is basically going to allow Chinese state-owned enterprises to swoop in and, and, and buy up their companies at the cutthroat prices. And so they're tightening up investment restrictions to stop that from happening. It's not just a a Trump thing. It is broader. That said, a de-Trumpified world would be a, a slightly more certain one.
0: In the cover briefing you wrote about deglobalization, there was a paragraph in there that jumped out at me that said that the next iteration of globalization might just be a bit less China-dependent or China-centric. That doesn't sound like it's necessarily a bad thing.
5: I think it is not necessarily a bad thing if it reflects people making decisions based on a better understanding of the risks of that, right? So to the extent that they have learned something from the past few years, and they're now saying, you know what, let's just diversify, let's just spread the risk a bit. I think that's fine. I think the worry is that it becomes something much darker than that. The idea of of China entering the WTO was always... Pulling it close and hoping that it would converge in some sense. Now, clearly, that didn't happen in the way that people wanted. The question is if they're pushed away, does that make things better or worse? I don't know, but I'm not entirely relaxed about the prospect of finding out.
0: So, Charlotte. Samaya makes a distinction between deglobalization and de-Chinafication, which is a, that's a horrible neologism that's not going to catch on anyway. You get the point. Um, does that make some sense to you?
2: Yes. COVID in a variety of areas has accelerated trends that were underway already, and you see that in particular with trade. And so that doesn't mean abandoning China altogether or abandoning globalization altogether necessarily. But there are two things happening. One is that companies are not comfortable being too dependent on China. That doesn't necessarily mean that they move all their manufacturing back to uh, right next to their head office in the United States or in Europe or wherever the company may be headquartered. They may choose to move manufacturing elsewhere in Asia, for instance. COVID has accelerated in many areas trends that were already underway. And you see this with supply chains. Companies have for a while been thinking about how to become less dependent on China. That doesn't necessarily mean moving things back home. It might mean moving manufacturing to another jurisdiction, for instance, in Southeast Asia. And then there's also this question of whether companies, in addition to having overseas plants, want to have a larger share of their manufacturing capabilities closer to home. The answer on that is not quite clear yet. COVID, even though it feels like it's been dragging on forever, the world has been in lockdown only for a few months. And so I think over the course of the coming year, you'll be looking out in earnings statements and other company announcements for whether there's going to be a dramatic rethinking of supply chains or whether it's really just a tweak.
1: I think that's a great point. And I think we saw that sort of questioning beginning to happen with PPE shortage in America. A lot of the products were made in China and China wanted to keep as much as possible, understandably, for domestic reasons. And so you've seen this push to sort of reshore some capacity for PPE in America. And I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of trend continued. I don't know that that's full-on deglobalization, but I think a bit of reshoring is inevitable.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that just sounds like good pragmatic deglobalization. But it's also worth pointing out, because globalization gets such a bad rap uh, politically, that the solution to this virus will be in part a result of globalisation, right? If you look at all the teams around the world that are looking into how to make vaccines at record speed, they're remarkably globalised, both in terms of people, ideas, funding. So look at the one at the University of Oxford, for example, that's quite far advanced. The professor of medicine, who's in overall charge of Oxford University's medical research, Sir John Bell, is a Canadian They've got research scientists from all over the world. Funding has come from all over the world, including from the US government. And so while it's pretty easy to kind of ding globalization for uh, for job losses, it's also the case that there are all sorts of good things, including vaccines for COVID-19 that come about as a result of the globalization making the world smaller.
1: On the merits, you're right. But politically, that's a tough sell to make just because globalization has become associated with with sort of job loss and indifference to Americans. You've started to see this in the 2020 race with China bashing has become an equal party pursuit. Joe Biden released an ad not long ago that blamed Donald Trump for being soft on China. And what I think is interesting is that he's not wrong, right? Donald Trump has been very cozy with China's leader even as he has continued to bash China for its coronavirus behavior. But I think that Trump spies an opportunity in the sense that toughness on China could divide the left. When Joe Biden released that ad accusing Donald Trump of being soft on China, there's a lot of Twitter pushback sort of implying that that sentiment, that suspicion of China was somehow connected to racist attacks against Asian Americans. That is not entirely without merit, right? There have been Asian Americans unjustifiably attacked because of suspicions about COVID-19, There has to be a way for Joe Biden, for Democrats to criticize the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government without it being interpreted as a racist attack against Chinese people.
2: Yeah, it's kind of helpful to look at the immigration example with Republicans. China, along with immigration, has become a helpful boogeyman for the Trump administration to blame for any number of American ills. And when you look at the polling, it's pretty bipartisan, actually, unlike with immigration, where at least with China, about two thirds of Americans view China unfavorably. That's a big jump from two years ago, which was 47%. And Republicans are more negative on China than Democrats. But Democrats are still pretty negative. It's Republicans 72% to Democrats 62%. So you see why Republicans view bashing China as a good political stance and why Biden placed that ad, but there is a risk of it getting out of control
1: and I don't think China bashers actually know what they want, right? Steve Bannon has said China has to pay a price. The attorney general of Missouri has sued China in court over its COVID behavior a suit that is destined to fail. But what does pay a price mean? What are people prepared to do? What are they prepared to ask Americans to do? What do they actually want? I don't think that the right has
0: answered that question yet. I think the answer to that, John, maybe that it's just a kind of rather inchoate desire that China would just go away and leave America alone. Whatever happens, that is not going to take place. Um, We're going to hear a lot more of this debate between now and November. I get a fundraising email more or less every day from the Trump campaign talking about Beijing Biden. As you say, Joe Biden's at pains to paint Donald Trump as soft on China himself. If the two of them ever debate um, on a stage, which seems like a kind of remote prospect, but presumably will happen at some point between now and November, I think this is one that we will be hearing a lot about. Okay, before you guys go, it's quiz time. The first time The Economist reported seeing an iPhone was in March 2007, a couple of months before it went on sale. The device had gadget fans salivating the paper reported but our correspondent with a characteristically good nose for consumer tech was skeptical about apple's design (laughs) a key feature was missing that made the iphone quote tricky to use what was it buttons
1: buttons to press yeah those blackberry keys you both
0: got it full marks for both of you it had no buttons typing on the iphone is rather fiddly our correspondent warned in fairness i would point out that remember how how small those first iphones were it was kind of fiddly you had to have thumbs the size of a toddler anyway in that same issue the lexington column profiled john mccain highlighting his qualities as a presidential candidate but the arizona senator was 25 points adrift of the leading republican at the time who was that
1: oh i should know this
0: um it
1: what was it Romney? I think Romney finished second that year, but I can't remember if he was. No, he it was wasn't Romney.
2: Um, Romney was not doing well. Hold on a second. It might have, Huckabee was doing well in the early in the early states that year.
1: Or or Rick Santorum. Santorum surged in twenty surged in twenty twelve. No, he surged in twenty twelve. I feel like I'm missing someone very obvious. We're really floundering. I hear it. Yeah, who was it? <laughs>
0: The, the answer is Rudy Giuliani. Oh.
1: <laughs> that's hilarious. It was him, Fred Thompson, the sort of moderates. Yeah, that's right.
2: Uh, Fred Thompson. What's he up to now?
0: That's the subject for another quiz. Thank you, John. Bye, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Bye, John. That's all from us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please spread the word and leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.